Hello and welcome to Sick Transit Gloria. I'm Anna. I'm Sabina. Thanks for tuning in tonight. We have for you the second part of our interview with Hugh Ryan, who wrote When Brooklyn Was Queer. And he's going to be talking a bit about his book and some of the stories that he tells. And don't forget his exhibition at Bobst um, called Violet Holdings. It's in the atrium of Bobst. Is that an atrium? It is. The book is chronological. So we start in basically 1855, which is when Walt Whitman publishes Leaves of Grass. And he's kind of my way in because he was literate and he kept notes on a lot of things. And he had a lot of lovers, it seems, who were men, white men, who were laborers on the waterfront, many of whom were either illiterate or just didn't keep their own information. And so he kind of provides us with this map or this little inroads to a community that we can see existed because he existed but we don't have any other information about and then we move forward and i sort of track the earliest uh, arrival of queer women in the historical record a woman named mary halleck foot who today nobody really remembers her but at the end of the 1800s beginning of the 1900s she was one of the most famous author illustrators in america she wrote like 30 books about her life in the west and what it meant to be a pioneer woman, and she illustrated them herself, she had beautiful illustrations. When I realized that I didn't know a lot about the queer history of Brooklyn and that I wanted to write about it, I was really excited for many reasons, but one of the reasons is that I thought, you know, so often the queer history that we do get is really focused on men, white men, cisgendered white men, and I thought, well, the great thing about Brooklyn is it's so diverse, and I'm gonna look at this incredibly diverse history. And one of the things I noticed right away is that the older history was very white. And so I was like, well, Let's figure out some answers about this. What is it? Is, am I looking at the wrong sources? Am I looking at the wrong places? Am I looking at the wrong time periods? And I looked at the demographic history of Brooklyn, and I realized that from the end of slavery in New York State up through the 1940s, Brooklyn was basically like 98 and 99% white for most of that time, whiter than Manhattan, more racist than Manhattan, had a tendency to vote against um sort of laws that we would generally characterize as civil rights now at much higher numbers than the rest of New York City did. And that was really hard. That was uh, disappointing about a city that I loved, you know, and it meant that I had to write into that history and to say, why did Brooklyn develop as a white space? What does it mean for Brooklyn to be white? What does it whiteness mean in the 19th century? Where do queer people of color exist and find safety in Brooklyn's history, particularly in these furthest back moments? And once I started looking at that uh, analysis, one thing that popped out that was fascinating to me, and that I'd sort of known a little bit about but hadn't gone into in any depth, was that the scientists in the early part of the 1900s, the eugenicists, who believed that sort of the entire personality, everything about you was determined by your body and could be read from your body. So you were... You know, the fact that you are trustworthy can be noticed because your lips are of a certain size. And the fact that you physically can't whistle means that you're probably gay. And like all of this weird shit that means nothing to us today. Those doctors were responsible 
for kind of coming up with this idea that there is a white race, that Europeans, these inter-European divisions that so, meant so much in the 19th century really don't matter. This is the time of the Great Migration. There are increasing numbers of black Southerners moving up to the North and black Northerners who have real power and are entering public life. And at this moment, these doctors start saying like, no, 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 no. You know, Southern Italians, you're white. Irish, you're white. British, you're white. Eastern European Jews were still not certain about, but everybody else from Europe, you're white, those people are black, we need to protect the white race. And I, I'd known that history, but what I didn't know was that those exact same doctors were the ones who were trying to parse out what it meant to be queer, that they were researching queer people, they called them inverts generally, and it was for the same reason, for protecting the white race. They saw queer people as an internal threat to whiteness. What happens when you don't have doctors who are in charge of who can get married, who can reproduce, and anyone's allowed to sort of have babies? That was one threat. And the other threat to whiteness was from the outside, what they called miscegenation, intermarrying between white people and people of color. And so they constructed both the modern idea of whiteness and also our modern ideas of homophobia, that they sort of looked at it and said, this is about protecting the white race. And I hadn't known those deep connections between racism in that sense, just like I hadn't known the racist history of Brooklyn. So that was a real surprise to me and something that I dig in very deeply in the book. And then a little bit later, we get the first presence, a really strong identifiable presence of queer people of color on the Brooklyn waterfront in the form of Alice Ruth Moore Dunbar Nelson, who's a writer from New Orleans who moves to Brooklyn. She's very young when she does. Like her first book comes out when she's like 19. I think she moves to Brooklyn when she's like 21 or something like that. And she comes to be a school teacher in Weeksville, which was the oldest neighborhood, black neighborhood in Brooklyn, uh, the history of which has been really lost uh, to a, an astounding degree today, although there's a great heritage center and a really wonderful book by Judith Wellman about it. But she comes to teach there because it's on the forefront of integration in school systems in America. And she lives on the waterfront in Brooklyn Heights. And we know from later letters and diaries that she was having sexual and romantic relationships with uh, queer black women in the uplift movement. So women like her who are working in education, who are working uh, in you know volunteer missions. So that's the world she lived and worked in in Brooklyn. And we can sort of surmise from her later letters, which show these relationships with women not as surprising. She's not um, confused by them. It's likely, I would say, that she probably had earlier experiences. We don't have records of those in Brooklyn. That's where she met her first husband, and that's most of the records we have of her life in Brooklyn. But she is a queer person and living in the same queer milieu that will, kind of queer milieu that will later allow her to express those desires. So she sort of stands in for me for the first and earliest history of queer people of color in Brooklyn. And then once we get into the 1900s, I just start going by decade because there's so much information up through the end of World War II. At the end of World War II, as I mentioned earlier, everything starts to collapse. These jobs along the waterfront that had enabled this queer life to be built uh, really gets torn apart by a lot of reasons. It's suburbanization. It's the closing of the waterfront. It's the changing of shipping. And in large part, it's Robert Moses, the city planner, who does awful things to communities of color and to poor communities throughout the city, and particularly in Brooklyn. And because queer people are often poor, and he really hated the poor, Queer people kind of get decimated in a lot of ways by his actions. And so then a lot of the queer history in Brooklyn that I write about sort of falls apart in that point. So that I don't go decade by decade. I just kind of do a long, sad summary. 
And then that brings it up to the current moment where I say, look, you know, my, my history ends right before Stonewall because the waterfront communities that I'm tracing, that's their arc. But what's great about Brooklyn right now is that it is queerer than it has ever been. And it is not just one arc. There isn't this singular story of what it means to be queer and queer neighborhoods in Brooklyn today. You have all of these stories. You've got the history of Park Slope's lesbian communities starting in the 70s and 80s. You have the black gay bar scene in Crown Heights, which starts with Starlight Lounge, but then the Seville opens and a bunch of other bars open and lasts for 50 years. You have the continuing queer neighborhood in Brooklyn Heights, which is maybe the oldest queer neighborhood in all of Brooklyn. That gets smaller, it gets hidden, but it exists all the way through the 60s, the 70s, the 80s, the 90s, up to today. In fact, the American Community Survey, which is a, a takeoff or a part of the census sort of, found that in the most recent one that they did, the three areas of the city with the highest numbers of same-sex married couples are Greenwich Village, Chelsea, and Brooklyn Heights. And in fact, the single like district, according to, I don't understand their methodology, but the, uh, according to their methodology, the single district with the most same-sex marriages was a 12-block strip along the waterfront in Red Hook. You know, these things that we don't expect today, but show us that there was once settled queer history here. And that was, you know, just so exciting. So I end the book on somewhat of a sad note with the 1950s and 60s in Brooklyn, but also trying to show that where there had been this kind of clear cutting of the community that came before, so much more grew up afterwards. It's kind of this Hydra-like story. You cut off one head and seven more grow. The exhibition at Bofs is uh, very different from what I've been working on. It's not Brooklyn-centered. It's actually technically part of the Stonewall 50th celebration. But what they asked me to do was to look through the archives of the three libraries, the three special libraries at NYU. So there's Fales, which is, has the downtown collection. There's the university archives about NYU. And the Tammament and Wagner archives, which are labor history. And to just pull out some of the best and most exciting queer collections to highlight the history that exists here. Because one of the things I think often Stonewall gets reduced down to just itself, right? It's this moment that happens that changes everything. Nothing comes before it. Nothing is around it. And it takes a while for things to build off of it. And what I really wanted to show in this exhibition is that there's all of this queer history that precedes Stonewall. There's all of this queer history that happens at the same time as Stonewall. And there's so much history that comes after it. And so I got to pull out these incredible collections like Elizabeth Robbins, who was a 19th century actress, author, suffragette, and just this incredible woman who lived with her partner, with a, a, a close woman friend for many years of her life named Octavia Wilberforce. And her collection is incredibly well documented. And it's amazing. It goes back to the 1800s, has letters with Oscar Wilde and telegrams with Virginia Woolf. And, and then... Looking in the same archive, I found the collection of a playwright named Maria Irene Fornes, who is not super well remembered today, although a documentary did just come out about her. She's an incredibly important, incredibly prolific off-Broadway playwright. Uh, Paula Vogel, the very famous playwright, once said that there are two periods in the career of every playwright before and after she has read Maria Irene Fornes. Uh, Tony Kushner, who did Angels in America, called her one of the most magical theater makers living today. And she had actually looked back into history and found Elizabeth Robbins and written a play about Elizabeth Robbins writing a play. And 
I was able to put those two archives, which are held in the same place, but a hundred years apart, into conversation with each other, just the way that Fornes herself put them into conversation. And doing those kind of connections, that kind of uh, sort of deep queer history and uh, community making is what excites me so much. And I think that's what the show really does a lot of. And it also has these like wonderful, really fun collections that I don't think people know are here. Like Larry Levin, who is an incredibly important uh, DJ during the 70s and 80s. He's the DJ at the Paradise Garage. He's world famous. He creates garage music. And his archive is here at NYU. So it's got records and fan letters requesting songs and flyers and photos of him with all of these divas. And it's, it's just not something that if you didn't know it was already here, you might not think to go looking for it. At least for me, one of the fun parts of the book is that I try to show how our ideas about what sexuality is and what gender is and what race is have changed over and over again and in significant ways. And in every stage, including right now, we always think we know what's right and that the people before us were ridiculous for what they believed. But it's going to change again. And that, I think, is the empowerment of history. I came to queer history, like I think a lot of people, because I was looking for a mirror. I wanted to see myself somewhere. When I was coming up, when I came out, I had never met an out gay person in my entire life. And so it attracted me because I thought, well, I'll find myself there. And then what was wonderful and beautiful about it is that I actually found very different things. I didn't find myself. I found a window, not a mirror. And that is so much more empowering. Instead of looking into a past and being able to find myself exactly a hundred years ago, living the exact same circumstances, I found people who are like me in some ways and really different in others. And the fact that they lived so differently meant to me that the future could also be really different, right? The malleability of history is what is magical. But if we refuse to see it, if we don't let historical figures be really different from us we sort of force our identities onto them or say we understand the world the proper way we're going to erase the way you understood it and just classify you our way then we lose that power to project into the future and say all of this could be different eventually and and that's what excites me about history i mean i will just say to anyone listening if you're interested in a question and you can't find the answer dig into the archive it's really fun you'll find things that surprise you and that surprise everyone and it's intimidating at least for me even though you know I, I have a graduate degree in writing I've been a journalist it's intimidating to go into an archive but that's what they're there for they're there to be used and they're there for people to listen to these histories to go find oral histories to go find photos and so don't let them scare you you know go in ask questions look at the resources yourself it's fun that's kind of been our theme for this uh, season of the podcast <laughs> accidentally is archives <laughs> It's, you know, there's so many archives out there. Thanks for listening to Sick Transit Gloria on 89.1 FM WNYU. I'm Anna. I'm Sabina. Our theme music is by Shilpa Ray. And a special thanks to Hugh Ryan for coming in and talking with us for this episode.